Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. My guest tonight is one of my favorite ladies on the planet. She's one of my other mothers who has been a part of my life for so long. And I am so excited to introduce you to Sherry Swanson, who I met back in my days in Southern California. Um, But I'm going to let her give you a brief introduction of herself. So Sherry, would you introduce yourself to our listeners? I would be happy to do so. And I think Jessica, you were probably about four when we met. And only eating little hot dogs out of a jar. (laughs) You did not just say that. (laughs) I couldn't help myself. I'm sorry. Oh, we might need to give some context for that. So why don't you tell everybody what you do for a living? (laughs) Anyway, I am first and foremost a wife of 54 years. I am also a mother of... um, obviously grown children, and the grandmother of two teenage boys. My occupation is that of a nutrition counselor. I don't think many people love their job more than I do. I never dreamed that at 74, I'd still be doing this full time, but I just love what I do. Pretty much that's it. I'm still laughing over here. <laughs> yes. So so Sherry has been our family's nutritionist for so long. And I, like many young little children, was a bit of a picky eater. And you just started right away helping in my life. And I actually have so much that I can attribute to, to you. But we're not in my story today. We're in your story. And so I wanted to ask you to start way back at the beginning of your life, because as I understand it, the very first days, weeks of your life may have really played a role in how you ended up being passionate about and getting into the field of nutrition and and health and wellness. That's really is a fact. I don't think very many people um, that I've worked with actually know this story, but every time I have ever told anyone the story, the look on their face is always interesting. My mother took, it was, took her seven years to achieve the pregnancy. She was an asthmatic, a very severe asthmatic. And during the middle 40s, it was very cool to smoke. And I know that sounds horrifying that you're asthmatic and smoke, but My mother did that, and she was very ill throughout her pregnancy, and her mother um, abruptly, it was a very quick thing, uh, passed away in Missouri, and my mother lived in California, and they said she wasn't well enough to go back for the service, and it upset her a great deal, and uh, being just a little over six months pregnant, she went into labor. And in those days, they didn't know how to stop the labor. So she was in labor, hard labor for four days, as I understand it. And so the doctor told my father that they were going to do a C-section because they were so afraid she had pneumonia by then that she wouldn't survive and that the baby wouldn't survive. Just due to the fact in those days, there were no neonatal centers or ways to carry or to care for a premature baby. So my father agreed to that. And to make the story a little bit shorter, 
I believe it was actually 10 days if we were to be accurate, they brought this little specimen in and said, you have a baby. It's not a very well baby, but both of you are living and we're going to send you home. You know, you said so many things just in that story that I imagine listeners had their jaw down or had more questions going, wait, what? Are you kidding me? And and then how are you? <laughs> it's, it is such a shocking story, especially when we sort of think of birth stories of today and what would happen or what knowledge we would have now and just how different things were. And it really wasn't in the grand scheme of things that long ago. No, look how far we've come because, and I don't talk about this part of it, but I didn't have any bonding because in the 60s, when I was at Loma Linda, when you were pretty sure a baby wasn't going to survive, and this was just the 60s, they pushed that baby over in the corner. You didn't pick that baby up. You diapered it, you fed it, but you did not pick that baby up. Now, I'm sure by the 70s that finally that had we'd evolved out of that nonsense. But when we don't have human contact, I think it's devastating to us. And correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't your parents think that you were actually gone, like actually dead for a while? Yes. Yes. I don't know. I never asked my dad that question, but he was so involved in mother living. I don't think he even ever asked. So, but I I often think that some of the things that are not as good about me as they should be were from that lack of bonding. I, to this day, if I travel, if I have to go somewhere, I have no trouble driving anywhere, but I have to know exactly where I'm going. If I don't, I'll have a panic attack if I get lost. If I, when I travel by air, I have no trouble with the airplane. When I go into an airport, if I haven't been in that airport before and I'm worried about my connecting flight, um, and I, I've had this happen to me where I can't find where I'm supposed to go right away, I'll have a full-blown panic attack. I don't know that people see it, but it's really hard to get yourself out of that and, you know, straighten yourself out and get yourself. And it, it sounds ridiculous when you think about it, because if, as my husband said, if you get lost, you get unlost. I said, that's a rational thought. This is an irrational feeling. I understand that, but it's still real. I never laugh at anybody who finally reveals something they're embarrassed about. I said, look, we all carry things we wish we didn't have. (laughs) And it's better to let them out in the open and admit them. It took me a long time in my work till I would admit, oh, I've had that happen or this happened to me. And then I realized I'm so much better at what I do if I show my frailties. Yes. And and that, I mean, that speaks to the whole purpose of Story Night, real women sharing real stories. Yes. And when you're real and you're open and authentic, that's really where the real hope comes in. Correct. So let's return now to the earliest days of your life. You're a premature baby, born in a time when the medical knowledge was not at all what it is now. Eventually, the doctors send you home with your parents. I think it's safe to say that the chances of you surviving and being a well, healthy child were pretty slim. 
but by the grace of God, here you are. So can you tell us how those early days, weeks, and years of your life and your health led you then into this interest in nutrition? Because I couldn't keep my body weight up in those days. If a baby survived, I guess that's what they did with all of them. They just put me on the um, oven door to keep the temperature up. My husband said it is the gas that made me the way I am today. He thinks that's all very funny. But they fed me canned pet milk because my mother wasn't well enough to feed me. And I didn't gain weight. I didn't grow. And so the doctor's thoughts to that were just when uh, it was time to feed me, just feed her anything that has calories in it. So I would eat dried jello and uh, anything, uh, chocolate milk. My sister said that my mother would, I don't remember it, but my mother would get up in the middle of the night and make a big chocolate milk for me to drink. And my father worked for a bakery. So I had lots of donuts and rolls and everything else that was kind of empty. And I still didn't really grow or thrive. I, I didn't have much of an immune system. I had so many ear infections uh, that my eardrums uh, burst, I think, three or four times on both sides. And when you look back on it through the birth process, I wasn't blind. I wasn't deaf. I didn't have cerebral palsy. I mean, I came out with all my faculties. And when you think about it, that's has to be God. There is no way I could have really been healthy any other way. But I had a home teacher up until the end of sixth grade, much, much of the time. I did go to school, but I ended up being back home again because I caught all, all the colds and blues. And, and I was sitting on the sofa one day and I had this epiphany. I could be sick like this the rest of my life, or maybe I could be well. And I had my mother take me to the library and I found two books, one by an old author named Gaylord Hauser and another one was Adele Davin and they were on how to be healthy. So I took those books home and being 12, I didn't understand everything in there. But the gist was I shouldn't eat fried foods or sugar. Well, that's what I lived on. So I asked my mother if I could please make my own food and see, she said, sure. And it took me two years to get well, but I got well and I've never been sick since. And so it's an odd little story, but this isn't something I could make up. And again, showing God in action, even when I don't know that anyone prayed and asked for help, he was there anyway. It's pretty incredible that at such a relatively young age, you were able to make yourself well uh, after getting just really a couple of books. And I know it wasn't something that happened overnight. You said it was a couple of years, but what did you do? I mean, for those listening, wondering how, how did you do that? What changes did you make that allowed you to get healthy? Well, mainly my mother was a fabulous Midwestern cook, but uh, breakfast was either the you know cinnamon rolls and maybe some hot chocolate or it was pancakes or waffles. And when you think, nobody thinks about that because we think of them as just simply breakfast foods, but all, you're eating basically, you know, just mainlining sugar and white flour. There's no nutrients in any of that. And that's what 
the books taught me. So I learned how to make hot oatmeal and put raw honey in it and sprinkle some nuts on top and uh, how to um, have eggs any way that I wanted them and have a piece of toast and some bacon and have basically what I tell people now, fiber, fat, essential fat and protein at each meal. So with the eggs, you have the protein and a measurable amount of essential fat. And then you have fiber, you know, from the toast. Or with the oatmeal, you want to, um, I would usually eat a hard boiled egg with the oatmeal because I happen to like them. And so I would have the protein and then I would have the fiber um, from the oatmeal. So those were, I would go back and forth with those two things at lunch. I would have um, some meat that didn't, it was lunch meat, but it didn't have nitrites in it and um, a slice of cheese. And I would make an avocado and I would make myself a sandwich. Sometimes I would, I learned how to make tuna salad or egg salad, or I would have uh, roast beef or ham or turkey. So I could make myself different kinds of sandwiches because that was definitely within my ability at age 12 to do. And the book also said I should have a piece of fruit with my lunch. So I always would pick a fruit and sometimes it was a pear, sometimes it was an apple, Summer, it was probably watermelon or cantaloupe or something. And none of this was magical, but it was all the building blocks that I needed because I stopped eating foods that wouldn't. One of the books said, and I don't know how accurate this actually is as a statement, but it made an impact on me that everything that you eat either creates a cell or it destroys a cell. So I thought, well, everything I eat, I'm going to create a cell with. And dinner, my mother always fixed good dinners. And there was a there was a vegetable always there and, um, you know, a protein source and a salad. And because I was a skinny little kid, you know, it was always good to have a baked potato or some rice, you know, little pasta. So none of this is anything that you really learn anything from. But if you look at it, there's no junk. And I think junk today for me is like protein bars. People think those are a food. And it's just like that story about the Twinkie, you know, the 20-year-old Twinkie. Everybody's heard that story. Well, you can do the same thing with a bar. Stick it on the windowsill and it it's not going to mold. And if a food won't mold, it's not a food. And you can't make a single new cell out of it. And people think those things are food. They're not. Well said. Very, very simple things to do. I love... The visuals like the 20-year-old Twinkie are, are so helpful. And I know when I taught nutrition to all my um, elementary students, we would look at the back of the label and look at how many grams of sugar and we would get sugar cubes to sort of stack them up. And when you visually see stacks of sugar cubes and realize how much sugar you've just consumed when the daily recommendation is you know, a fraction of that, and that was only you got all that just from one drink, <laughs> let alone your whole day. Children will never forget that because it was interesting. Yeah. An interesting visual. Yes. Absolutely. And so here you are, a junior higher, and yeah. you've finally gotten well, but you as far as I know, you didn't jump, you know, straight into the nutrition field like oh. right out of high school or college. No. 
I was originally going to be an occupational therapist and I got three quarters of the way through that and realized it just wasn't a good fit. I just, uh, I wanted to work, I thought in the medical field, but didn't know where and occupational therapy seemed like a perfect fit for me. But I saw that a lot of these children were not fed correctly. And so I being having had my own experience, I said, you know, these children need protein in the morning, they need to be fed better. And everyone said to stop it, mind your own business. And I just had all these ideas on how these children could progress more quickly. And all of these ideas were just shut down. And I was too immature at that time to realize that someday I would be the senior person and I could make headway then. I just picked up my marbles and left and just said, well, I'm not doing this. I'm going, I have this segue into nutrition and I'm going to do that. Well, at that time, the only thing you could be was a dietitian. There was no certification to become a nutrition counselor. So honestly, even working with physicians in the beginning, I let them know I'm not licensed. There's no certification. This is how I work. I teach people how to grocery shop and how to feed their children. And so finally, certification came along about 10 years later, and I went back and got that. So I I at least had something legal that looked like I knew what I was doing. (laughs) And kind of the rest is history, you know, as far as work went, I, no one even knows I was a a prenatal infancy, early childhood counselor. That's all I did the first 10 years. Uh, But I didn't have anywhere to send the parents or other adults. And so I started counseling the adults. And now no one even knows that that's what I did, because I, that's probably 10% of my work now. Well, we're so grateful for the work you do. And I think it's, it's, it is, it's so important. And I'm just amazed. Um, I think it's wonderful. And I wanted to, I know there's a little bit more that I wanted to ask you about regarding your work within nutrition. But before we get to that, I was hoping you could share how you found and married your husband and started your family. Well, that's a little embarrassing. I met my husband in 1966 at a wild Easter week party in Laguna Beach, California. And he walked into the room. And if there is such a thing as immediate recognition, I took one look at him and that was just it. And we talked till five o'clock in the morning, met him at 10 o'clock at night And this is the truth. He asked me to marry him in the future. And I said I would. And uh, as I when each of my children respectively asked how I met daddy, I always cringed and told them the truth. And they gave the appropriate answer. That's the stupidest thing I ever heard. And uh, both of us were in college. We were both working our way through college, paying our own way. And so in those days, it was too expensive to talk long distance. So I would go down to his parents' house on Friday night and stayed with them. He worked on Saturday and Sunday. So I only saw him Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night. 
And uh, so never saw him in a regular setting of day after day. And we married in August. So it was three months later. Now, my father and mother, of course, were understandably very upset about this. I couldn't understand it at the time, but uh, I overheard my father say to my mother, we have taught her right and wrong. And if she doesn't know better by now, she probably never will. So we're going to give her the wedding that she's asking for. And so as we started to walk down the aisle, my father stopped me and said, you can stop this right now. You don't have to do this. And I thought, what? And, And he said, If I walk you down this aisle, you have made your bed and you will lie in it. You can never come home. And it never occurred to me that he would hit me or drink or do drugs or not work. None of that ever occurred to me. And I will tell you, if anything had ever gone wrong, I would have cut off both my arms and legs before I would have ever let my parents know because I knew they meant it. (laughs) But I did take it very seriously. It just, I just assumed it would go just fine. But we did not know each other at all. It was just an attraction that I still can't explain. If I haven't seen him in a period of time when we used to have our ranch in Colorado, he would be gone several months. And if I picked him up at the airport, my heart would still race when I saw him. So it turned out to be just a great thing. I don't recommend doing that, but it worked for me. There are so many stories like that where it, you know, by the grace of God, it did work out because like you said, you mentioned all of those things that can happen and and sadly often do happen when people get married when they don't know each other. And all of a the sudden there there is the abuse and there there is the pain and there is the brokenness that shows up, it comes to the surface. And what a blessing that you didn't experience a lot of the pain that that could have happened. And that's not to say that your marriage has been perfect. I know you've been through a lot together and, and we'll get to some of the details of that chapter. But first, would you tell us about how you started your family? Well, I think Vietnam was very hot at that time and my husband had a very low draft number. So uh, he had been drafted once and um, they threw him out because he took some daily medication for uh, a salve for his eyelids, strangely enough. And that night he was back home again and we thought we were home free. And a year later, here came that little package again. I know what it looks like. And we had purchased a car and furniture and lived in a home and this was not part of our plan at all. And so I got a hold of a gentleman that I'd worked for in college, who was a retired Air Force gentleman, and he got Gary into the Air Force, and we thought that would keep us out of Vietnam. Well, we also put in to go to the East Coast and have an adventure, get out of California. When the time came, I'd sold all our furniture, sold our car, everything, And they sent us to Vandenberg Air Force Base, which is three hours away from Newport Beach. I never got out of California. And so while we were there, I think there were 65 people in his squadron. He was the only married one. And by then we had decided, well, we might as well, you know, let's let's have a baby. And 
So Alyssa was born and he was the one they sent to Vietnam. The only one in 65 people, the only married one, plus we had a child. So they, they do do those things. And so that was a very difficult time because there were no emails. There was no FaceTime. And I never knew if he was dead or alive for months at a time. The, the good that came out of that was I moved back to uh, Redlands where I had grown up and rented a little house a half a block from my parents. And uh, it was a very wonderful bonding time with their granddaughter. And I am very grateful, actually, for that. But I don't recommend war to anybody. (laughs) Before I have you share about the continuation of growing your family and the rest of your life story, I I just wanted to stop for a minute and, and thank your husband for his service and thank you as his wife, because having family in the military, I know a lot of listeners maybe were in the military themselves or they have a loved one who has served or who is currently serving. And it it really goes beyond just the individual. It's the whole family. And, and regardless of whatever people's political opinion is, we're just deeply impressed with and amazed by our veterans and just wanted to well, honor him. How kind of you. And thank you very much because it does change you. I, I know when I hear down at the El Toro Marine Base, these young wives, I mean, it's a hidden thing about how difficult being in the military is. It was certainly an eye-opener to me. And when my husband came home, people spit on him. Certainly no one said thank you. And none of those men were sent there of their own choice. You know, it was not voluntary at that time. And do you want to go to jail or do you want to go to Vietnam? That's the way it was. And uh, it changed Gary dramatically. Our marriage almost didn't make it. You know, they did not know what PTSD was at that time. So there was no recognition. So certainly no treatment. And uh, we were actually separated for a year because he was just so traumatized. And I didn't know what to do about it. And we found a very good counselor and were able to very slowly put our lives back together again. But war does terrible things to people who are involved firsthand in it. And he did something about 10 years ago that he keeps our automobiles very meticulous and he doesn't want any stickers on the car, you know, or or bumpers, you know, he doesn't want anything on the car. And I noticed he got a license plate holder that said Vietnam veteran on it, which is not like him. He never wanted to talk about it at all, really. I asked him why he did that. And he said, very simply, we find each other in parking lots and we will stop and talk to each other about what we saw and what happened to us as human beings. And still, he finds people because they see, because they are, they were our, the one war uh, that probably did more emotional damage to a human being that is still not recognized today. Luckily, we were not a casualty, but it took a while to rebuild us because I didn't know what was wrong. I just thought maybe he didn't love me anymore. And it was 
really difficult. So it's very perceptive of you to even bring it up. Um, it's not something I think about a lot because it's still painful. Trying to piece myself back together here and just uh, losing my mascara as we as I'm listening to you because as women, we come together fairly easily and get our tribe and listen to podcasts like this and talk and share our stories. And generally speaking, men don't tend to do that as much. And just the thought of vets, Vietnam vets finding each other in a parking lot because of license plate, like that just touches me in a way that I don't even have words for. Um, and just to anyone out there who relates to this, I, I hope you can find some encouragement in Sherry's story that that counseling can be a very necessary and helpful and wonderful thing. And what a testimony to the both of you for putting in that time and putting your marriage back together and your life back together. And I'm so glad you did. And I think there's another human that is so glad you did as well. And and maybe you can kind of tell us now how how you get to extending your family. Well, let's see. After Alyssa was born, we didn't have another child for 11 years because we ended up having some rather complicated uh, blood incompatibilities. And so I was very, very happy that we had one very healthy child and uh, went about our way until she was 10 years old and it was Christmas and all she wanted was clothes for gifts and there were no toys under the tree. And my husband said, I'm too young for this. I don't know about you, but please, 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 please. Can we have one more child? And out of my mouth came, I'll give it eight weeks. And I thought, who said that? I can't believe I even said that. And I thought, and you'll laugh, of course, in today's world. You know, I was thinking I'm 35 years old and I probably won't get pregnant easily. So I'm not really going to worry about what I just said. And I found out I was pregnant almost immediately. And I just thought, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Well, after I got over the initial shock, I realized I couldn't keep two jobs anymore because I had a teaching job in the morning. And then I did nutrition counseling in the afternoon. And for people who know me, they realize I am what I call um, financially constipated in view of the fact that I loved being salaried. It gave me a certain amount of money every month. And I just really liked that. And nutrition counseling couldn't offer me that. And that's where God comes in, because I think one of the reasons God put that pregnancy in my life was I had to make a choice of which job to give up. And I just was having because nobody takes care of my children but me. I like to raise my children myself. And I thought, I can't do this with two jobs. And I was driving down a, a rather steep road in town. And we have an island uh, right off the coast where I live called Catalina. And uh, the sun was going down over Catalina. And it was very beautiful. And I got caught up in looking at that sunset. And I said, you know, God, I just want to know if we're going to starve if I give up my salaried teaching job. And it's okay if we're going to starve. I just need to know, are we going to starve? And this big booming voice, not a whisper, but a big booming voice said in the car, this is what you are supposed to be doing. 
And you know, it didn't impress me one single bit because God never answered my question. He just said a statement, this is what you are supposed to be doing. And I realized that I was going to just do nutrition counseling and had to give up that salary job. And I know God's hand was not just in the fact I was to have this child, but that I also was supposed to be doing this job. And if I hadn't had that child, I would have never become really a professional uh, full-time counselor. So I got two gifts. I, I got this wonderful little boy and I also got my job. Thank you, God. So amazing. Um, and there's so many people that have had that experience where they hear an audible voice. It's just, God amazes me. I wanted to ask, when did you actually meet God? Like, was he a part of your life always? Always. My mother, um, we would always say a prayer before I got out of the car to go to school. I have from my mother a very childlike belief system. I am not a Bible scholar. I know a few things, but I'm not nearly as good as a lot of people are about knowing where passages are in the Bible and so on and so forth. But no one shakes me off my center. It's I probably have the faith of a, of a three-year-old child. It's very simplistic, but it's in me all the time, all the time. I can never remember a time really that I didn't feel God's presence. I love that. I think a lot of us probably need that three-year-old faith much more yeah, so. I thought you, you can't ask me a bunch of questions. I don't know any of the answers but I just know that he is present. That's all I can say. So through your story, we've talked about your career and passion for nutrition and health and wellness. And we've also talked about some of the chapters of your life and how God has been ever present. I think there are a lot of people that sort of put those topics in two different boxes. They put physical health in one box and spiritual health in a completely separate box. And I wanted to, as we're starting to wrap up, give you a chance to kind of debunk that myth, shall we say? <laughs> yes. What I have to say about that is actually, it's really very personal with me because I have done many, many talks in many, many churches. I find people do want to make them separate things. And yet, if you cannot, God's voice, I think most of the time is more of a whisper than a shout. And if you fill your body with things that are not good for you, you cannot hear that tiny voice. And so in the Bible, there are many, many places where it talks about the way we are to care for our earth suit, if you will. And I think as Christians, we are woefully, I don't know that inadequate is the word, but we are not taking care of our physical bodies. And when you don't take care of your physical body, I think it very much affects your ability to hear a sermon or hear a message even from someone talking to you because your blood sugars 
probably very low for one thing, like you're late getting to church would be an example. So all you've had is a cup of coffee. And then you hear the sermon just on a cup of coffee, which means I don't think you're going to hear all that you're supposed to hear. And then we have coffee and donuts again after the service. And maybe 60, 70 years ago, we didn't know better, but we do know better now. I think the days of the jello mold for the church social should be over. There are so many delicious things that God has put on the planet that don't even have to be made into a recipe that could be put out after church so that our young children develop good habits and that we also are better nourished so that we can hear God's voice. Yes. And I hope, you know, I hope in these sort of conversations that that there's no condemnation that comes across that it's you know if if you're feeling that you aren't physically healthy that this this isn't a judgment that this conversation is more about our bodies are talked about as temples and yes. that we are to to take care of them you know if if we're believing that God created these bodies it's our privilege and our responsibility to take care of them and and to be healthy. Um and you know that doesn't mean oh my gosh feel terrible if you ever do one thing slightly unhealthy ever in your life but just to keep that in mind like we want to take care of ourselves emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually. That's they're all important. Yes, and may I say that it this is I think the best sentence. It is not so much what you do eat that makes the difference. It's what you don't eat that makes the difference. Your body will filter some junk. It's really a very tough piece of equipment, if you will. So if you get the nourishment that you need, it it doesn't matter when you eat something empty because you've already got what you need in the body. And people often would say to me, what did you do with your children when they were little and, and would go to other people's houses? I said, I told them to go have a good time, that whatever they're offered, they are welcome to eat. It's just that I don't buy those empty foods in our house. But you're welcome to go eat them at other people's homes and just be so grateful that you, you know, were asked in to their home. And it worked very well because my children never had to sneak because they will. I mean, good heavens, sugar tastes wonderful. You know, nobody said it didn't. So if you don't keep it away from them, and I never had to buy it. I mean, somebody else did that for me, but they also didn't have to wonder about it. And so as adults, they really went a wonderful direction with nourishing their bodies because they knew what the other tasted like, and it really just didn't have any power over them. I think that's such an important point because actually whether it's nutrition or exercise or anything else, it's really easy for us to beat ourselves up if we do something wrong. Exactly. That's the last thing I want from people. That's a real hot button with me. So you did that. So what? It doesn't mean that you're just damned at that point, you know, so you ate it. It was delicious. Okay. 
I mean, I do that. I People think I don't eat things that aren't good for me. I do. I just don't do it very frequently. Right. Because they're delicious. <laughs> of course, I wear it. So I don't know how happy I am later, but... Well, Sherry, I know you and I could talk nutrition for hours. We, um, it, it is a passion of mine, and I know it's a deep passion of yours, and it is relevant and it is important within our spiritual walk as well that we have these incredible vessels, these incredible bodies given to us, and, and they really are a gift. And I know so often as women, we look in the mirror, we see our body, and we see lots of things that we don't like, but just as a reminder for all of us, myself included, God didn't make a mistake when he created your body. And whether you're upset with what's happening internally or you don't like what you see externally, he didn't make a mistake. And we get we get to care for ourselves and care for our bodies. And that really, it really is part of the Christian walk. So I'm going to include in the episode notes all kinds of links for you and your business and what you're doing and also what your son Alex is doing because he is within the field as well and doing some incredible things with your genetic code and how that relates to nutrition. So for anybody who is interested in some of this and would like to know more or maybe even contact you because I know all your work now is really over FaceTime and things. So wherever you're listening from, you could totally have a consultation with Sherry. For our Oregon listeners, I am working very hard to get her to move up here. Her son, Alex, is in Oregon as well. So we we have a good chance. But until that point, we can uh, use technology. So before we, before we close in prayer, Sherry, I was just wondering if you had maybe the one-minute or two-minute freebie, like this little free consultation moment if somebody said, hey, I want to do something this week to improve my health and wellness, what would be a good starting point? Well, the first thing that comes to me is to use good oils. Buy olive oil in a dark bottle, buy real butter from cows that have just eaten grass. And the reason for that is they are an omega-3 then, which helps your body not have any inflammation anywhere. When we eat real butter, but the animal just ate grain, she then becomes an omega-6, and even then the butter isn't good for you. Everyone knows not to eat margarine, but a lot of people don't know the difference in butter. So you buy good olive oil and good butter. That would be the best start ever. I love that. Sherry, I want to thank you for taking time to share your story, everything from restoring your marriage as the wife of a Vietnam vet to the incredible beginning of your life and how you got into the field of nutrition and health and wellness. And I I think what you're doing is so impactful and so important and so valuable. So in closing, I just wanted to ask you, if you had a chance to you know, sit down and have coffee with one of our listeners, how do you feel like God has been ever present for you? The way I know that that is true is when I occasionally lose my way and I feel fearful, I realize that fear tells me that I am separate from God. 
at that time. And I am not living what I know to be true. And that when you feel fearful, stop, take stock, and realize that that isn't the light talking to you. And that put yourself, you know, visualize yourself in the light again and know then that the fear will dissipate. That I know to be true. I love that. Thank you, Sherry, so much for taking time to do this. It was my pleasure. You know, if it helped one person in some way that we might never know, well worth it, right? Oh, absolutely. Because your story never really sounds that interesting, but certainly there could be someone who might benefit. Mm -hmm. There are women all the time that tell me, oh, I don't really have a story. Well, we all have a story. Some of our stories are more dramatic than others, but I think it's very important for us to remember and value the stories that are less dramatic. And you know, if they would sit and journal where they can start what they remember first, they would be startled at the end of, oh, I remember this, and then this happened, and that happened. And then maybe you never saw God's hand before. But it always, when I see, I don't always see it right away, but at some point I see, now I see that that was part of the perfect plan. And Absolutely. it was Time's not my choice in any way. I did not want to be in that position. But, you know, it, it's always perfect. It's And things happen at the timing they're supposed to be. People say, oh, I wish I'd known that then. Well, you weren't ready for that information or whatever was you thought was supposed to happen then. You're ready for it now or it wouldn't be happening now. You know, no matter how what your age is, you're still not that familiar with how the story goes next, but I think it's exciting. Now, you know, what, what is the rest of my story? What else is in store for me? It's exciting. It is exciting. And I couldn't agree more. And for those who've been listening to the podcast since the beginning, they've heard me say this multiple times, but write down your story. And just what you said, Sherry, I, I encourage all women to do that write it down. It's a, it's a treasure. And whether you share it with one person or many, it is a treasure. And what a gift and legacy to leave for your children. Absolutely. And uh, as I've shared before, if you want help getting your story recorded, even if it's just for your family, I will absolutely do that. I feel so, so strongly that women should have their stories available to, you know, to pass down. What a service. Wow. <laughs> So I'm going to just close us and and for everyone listening, I just wanted to pray for each of you this week in whatever chapter you're in within your story, whether you connected to one little piece of Sherry's story or, or a lot of it. So Father, thank you so much for the stories that you're writing. They're so diverse and yet we're all unified because we all have the same author. I just want to pray, Lord, for all of the women out there who either had struggle within their own birth story, or as a mother giving birth or just creating their family, building their family. Lord, there's so many elements to Sherry's story that just kind of remind us that our expectation and wish of life and marriage and motherhood doesn't typically go to our perfect plan, but it goes to your perfect plan. 
And you had a reason for everything. And thank you so much for being ever present with Sherry. Thank you for speaking to her, whether it was through a whisper or an audible voice. Thank you for bringing her husband home from Vietnam and restoring their marriage. And for anyone listening, Lord, who is going through a similar season or who just understands that very unique and special relationship within the military, that that your hand is just on them, your hand of protection and healing and blessing, Lord, please work within those military families. And finally, God, I wanted to pray over all of the women listening for their health. And that word health covers so many aspects and they are all from you and they are all valuable and they're all important. And I ask that you would just provide that physical health for people. And for those who aren't in great physical health, that there would be a way for them to gain health, mental health, emotional health, physical health, and spiritual health, that they would see their bodies as a beautiful gift from you and and long to take care of it um, and take care of it well. So we just commit all of that to you, Jesus, and want to thank you for this time. Thank you for these stories and pray for the women who are tuned in in your name. Amen. Well, thank you again, Sherry. And thank you everybody for listening to our story night podcast this week. And I hope you come back next week for our next story. Good night, y'all. The Story Night Podcast. A ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women.